When I was young, younger, my, my youngest brother, he's about 10 years, 12 years younger than me. He was like the rascal of the family. I, I've told you before, I come from a large family. I'm the second of seven children. So the youngest was a boy and he was like, like the rascal, the, the, like the, the bad kid of the group. Um, and he was always getting in trouble. Now, my dad came from uh, previous generations. I'm sure some of your parents did. Maybe, maybe even you did, but I won't go there this morning. Um, <clears throat> but he used to spank us. And uh, don't send emails. This is a previous generation. So uh, he used to spank us. And in particular, my, my youngest brother, he got spanked the most, like, like legitimately all the time. Uh, and on this one occasion, he's doing what he always does, mouthing off. You know, or, you know, my dad would say, don't touch that. And what does he do? He runs over and he touches that like every kid is not supposed to do. But on this occasion, my dad, in the middle of his anger, gets up and storms off to get him. And my brother freaks like I've never seen a little kid freak out. I mean, like this blood-curdling cry, running, slamming into doors. And by the, ta- by the time my dad got to, got to him, the anger kind of dissipated, and he's laughing. And it goes from, ugh, just, just don't do it again. And he kind of turns off and walks away. And, and what we realized, my brother had kind of avoided the, the whole discipline by acting like he would after the discipline. Have you ever seen your kids do that? They kind of freak out before you discipline them, even before you get there. And what happened is what happened for most of us. It's behavior modification, isn't it? And that's how we kind of grew up. It was behavior modification. We don't do that, and we're supposed to do that. Don't say that, and we're supposed to say that. Uh, Don't go there, and then obviously, you know, we go and we go there, and, you know, discipline happens, and our behavior becomes modified. Now, now, as you probably won't find this a surprise, this kind of carried with us all the way through middle school, through high school, and into college. And what we learn from all of this is how to modify our behavior, right? We've learned how to modify and monitor our behavior. That's what behavior modification is. We kind of monitor it, and when we realize things aren't going the way they should, we modify it quickly. And this happened to all of us. Whether you know it or not, this happened to you. When you went to college, you know, you joined a certain group of friends or a fraternity or a sorority, they said, we, we don't act like that here. You got a job and it's, well, we don't do that kind of thing here. You know, you have a family. We don't say that kind of stuff here. And it's, it's all kind of behavior modification. It's, it's don't do this or don't say that or don't dress that way or don't use that kind of language. And we modify our behavior. So <clears throat> this week, as we've been kind of wrap up this series on guardrails, we're going to talk about what I think is the most important guardrail of all. And this kind of captures the, the, the entire idea and the, maybe the, the entire heart of the series. And that guardrail is this. You need to learn to guard your heart. That's our guardrail. You need to learn how to guard your heart. So <clears throat> if you haven't been with us from the beginning, we're going to go over just quickly, kind of get you guys up to speed with where we're at. Um, if you know what a guardrail is... Um, you probably know this definition by now. If you don't know where that, what the guardrail is, here's what it is. It's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And as we've talked about, a guardrail is never placed inside the danger zone, right? It's always placed where? In the safety zone. And we don't argue with that logic. It's kind of good. It keeps us from incurring too much damage. And a guardrail, as it's designed for a highway, a guardrails are designed to direct and to protect us, to do two things, to direct and to protect us from keep us from too much danger, like, you know, running into a cliff or running off the side of a road or, or a bridge. And as we've talked about it with this series, it's that guardrails aren't only meant for the highways, that, that it, when we think about it, we could all use some kind of guardrail in our life, whether, whether it be financially or morally, relationally, maybe in our marriage, maybe, maybe in how we parent. 
Maybe in how we raise our kids because, you know, we witnessed how our, our, our dad or our mom raised us and, and we, we don't want to do that. And, and oftentimes, we, we, you know, we find ourselves kind of veering in that direction. So even as parents, we need to play some guardrails so that we don't discipline like our dad's disciplined or we don't discipline maybe how our mom or maybe how our mom didn't discipline us. So even as parents, we realize we need guardrails. And what we find is a guardrail in, in this context, is a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. Or it's simply, it's a standard that I have developed for myself. You get to do it for you. I don't get to tell you where your guardrail needs to be, and you don't get to tell me where my guardrail needs to be. But I kind of set the guardrail up to where I feel like I need to be. This is as close as I can get to that thing or headed in that direction. So I create guardrails for me, and you create guardrails for you. Basically, so that when we start going too close to that danger zone, we start going too close to the areas we don't want to be, where it's leading us to perhaps a behavior that we don't want to act on, we kind of bump up against that guardrail. And it's like, like a light goes off in your conscience. It kind of dings your conscience a little bit. Hey, don't go there. Don't go that far. Don't do that thing. So guardrails are deeply personal, and we have them. I have them, and you have them. If you don't have them, let me encourage you. You need to get some before it's too late and before you hurt somebody you love or maybe even yourself. Today, as we wrap up the series, we're going to look, as I said before, at this biggest idea of a guardrail and this kind of this guard your heart. How do we guard our heart? How do we protect our heart? Solomon, you probably heard of King Solomon. He's a really famous king from the Old Testament. That's the old part of the Bible, the first kind of part, the ancient history part of it. Solomon was considered the wisest king to ever live. He was considered the wisest man to ever live. Some people still consider him that today. And he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of books. He wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Solomon. And they all kind of got sandwiched together with our New Testament and wrapped in leather, and that's our Bible. And as he wrote, he wrote about pretty much everything. He wrote about everything under the sun. He wrote about the meaninglessness of life, the purpose of life. He wrote about relationships and, and work and how we work and, and what happens after we die and, and how we kind of live with our marriage and how we parent our kids. He wrote a lot about wisdom. And when it comes to this idea uh, of what we're going to talk about, he starts off his text by saying, out of everything else I've written, out of all of the stuff I've written, and I've written a lot of things and all these things are, are wise. I mean, after all, I'm known as the wisest man in the world. All the stuff I've written above everything else I've written, what I'm about to tell you is of utmost importance. Have you ever had that kind of conversation with your kids as a parent? I know you've heard me say all these other things, but, but this is the most important thing of utmost importance above everything else I've said. You need to do this. I have that conversation with my kids. I feel like all the time. <clears throat> this is the most important thing. Don't miss this. This is how Solomon kind of begins his text to us. He says this in Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart above everything else I've ever said. Guard your heart. To which we would kind of ask the question, why? Solomon, like, what's the big deal? And he says this, for everything, that's everything, like everything, for everything you do flows from it. Now, here's my question. What if that's true? What if everything you do, what if everything you say, what if all of your actions or behavior kind of flow from inside you? And I'm not talking about the physical heart with, with you know, the blood and, and all that. I mean, that, that, that kind of thing on the inside of you, that thing you feel in your chest, your heart. What if everything you do actually flows from there? What if everything you said actually comes from there? What if all of your actions and all of your words and all, all the things that make you you, what if it all flows and originates from within? And the question for us would be, well, then what does it look like to guard your heart? I, I can see the importance, but, but, but what does it look like for us to actually guard our heart? 
One day, about a thousand years later, Jesus is kind of hanging out with his disciples and he's doing his, you know, his, his Jesus and disciple thing. They're walking around and they're teaching and preaching and, and healing a, a, all manner of sickness. And wherever Jesus went, there was this huge crowd of people that followed him. And it was made up of his disciples and, and his apostles and hundreds of other people. But on the outer rim of this group of people were these religious leaders that always followed around. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the high priests and the priests. And they would kind of walk around with this crowd for one purpose, to try to trip Jesus up. Every once in a while, they would try to ask Jesus a question, and their intention was to kind of trick him into a question so that they could isolate him away from the crowd and arrest him. Because these guys were a little bit of cowards. If the crowd was around, they wouldn't act for fear of what the crowd would do. So they would always try to be really smart and really wise and pose this question. And on this one occasion, some guys kind of wormed their way through the crowd, and they get to the front, and they think they figured it out. They think they have a question that could finally trick Jesus so they can arrest him. And they kind of come to the front of the line and they say this, hey, Jesus, we have a question for you. Why do your disciples, the, the guys that you're close with, the guys that you're kind of walking around with, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And I'll explain what they mean there in a minute. Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Now, now we read this and we're thinking, surely Mary and Joseph taught Jesus how to wash his hands. I mean, that's just gross, right? Surely the disciples' parents, I know they're uneducated, but surely somebody taught the disciples that they should wash their hands before they eat. Like, like what's the big deal with this? What he's referring to is, is in the Old Testament, the high priests, um, they had this law that was given from Moses that they had to be ceremonial clean, that they had to wash their hands before they touched anything that, that could kind of make them dirty before they went and did like uh, works for the Lord in the, in, the, in the temple. They wouldn't want to touch anything that could defile them and make them dirty where they were going into the cleanest place to be and to do work for God. So they had this law that they always had to keep their hands clean, that they always had to wash their hands before they touched anything, before they went and they did anything. They had to keep very clean so they could be kind of set apart to do the work for the Lord. Well, this was actually just a law that was given to religious leaders. But the religious leaders, they kind of took this law and they kind of turned it around and they made it a law for everyone. They, 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 they really, this wasn't a law given, like Jesus wasn't breaking a law. This wasn't a law given to regular people. This was a law given to the leaders and the high priests. But the high priests took this law and they made it for everyone. They said, no, everybody has to wash their hands now. Everybody always has to say ceremonial clean. You've got to be careful what you touch when it comes to things like blood or a dead animal or, or you know, feces. Like you don't touch dirty things because that makes you ceremonially unclean and you always have to be ready to do something for the Lord. So the Pharisees, these high priests, they took this law that was given to them and they kind of made it a law for all of Jerusalem. So understand, this was just a, a tradition. This wasn't a law. Jesus wasn't breaking a law. He was simply breaking these high priest tradition that they were kind of putting this out for other people. So they asked Jesus this question. And, and as we continue to read, you almost get this idea that Jesus is kind of smirking like, are you guys really going to do this now? You're going to ask me this now? Are you guys, you must be a little crazy. So Jesus responds and he says, basically, okay, let me ask you a question. Why do you actually break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Like you're accusing me of breaking a law, but that's just a tradition. But you're actually breaking a law for the sake of your tradition. And what he means is, is essentially, is the best way I can illustrate it is something like this. <clears throat> if you have a teenage daughter, you're going to know where I'm headed with this. But your teenage daughter is being a little disrespectful to your wife. So you create a, a law. Hey, do not disrespect your mom. Don't speak to your mother disrespectfully. So your teenage daughter kind of quips back, oh, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I heard Jim and I heard that whole series on guardrails. So I'm going to make a guardrail so I don't speak to mom disrespectfully. And as a dad, you're a little bit proud. Like, oh, that's great. Like, what's the guardrail? Here, here's what it is, dad. I'm just not going to speak to her at all. 
And you're laughing because you know how you're feeling. Like, no, 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 you must have missed the point because that is disrespect. You created a rule or a law that actually helps you violate the law that I want you to keep. You created a law to try and be safe, but what that actually did is create a law that helps you break the very thing that I want you to break. And as dads, you think, no, that's, a, that's like the definition of disrespect. You clearly missed the point. This is essentially what these Pharisees, what these high priests did. They created laws out of traditions that actually helped them break the actual law, the actual command of God. And Jesus knows exactly what they did, so he's going to kind of point the light on where they went with this. He says this, for God said, and now he goes back to like the big 10, right? The 10 commandments. This is like the foundation, the table of contents of the entire law. For God said, honor your father and your mother. But you say, if anyone declares <clears throat> that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Now his audience knows exactly what he's talking about, but I'm guessing you have no idea what he's talking about. So I, I want to help explain it to you. Now this is going to be a little confusing, but I'm going to do, do my best to try and break this down. <clears throat> they had this tradition, or the Pharisees rather, the Sadducees, kind of created this tradition for all the Jewish people that, that anybody who had any kind of wealth, if you were moderate, moderately wealthy or you were exceptionally wealthy, that you could decide at any point, just verbally say, hey, I'm dedicating all my stuff to the temple. I'm giving all my stuff to God. But then they followed up with that and to basically skirt them from being generous. They said, but, but if you do that, God's going to permit you, he's going to allow you to live and to provide for your family on all of your stuff until you die. And then once you die, that can all go to God's. Now, now that sounds <clears throat> kind of nice with they're being generous, they're kind of giving, but really what they're doing is creating a law or a rule or a tradition to help them not be generous and to not give. Because in this culture, when a parent would kind of come to them and seek help, when family members or someone would say, hey, I'm in need and I know you, you have a little bit more, they could just say, sorry, sorry, there, there's no giving while I'm alive. There's no more giving while I'm alive. I've given everything to God and God allows me to live on it, but I can't really give anything else to anyone else. Now, now Friday, I went and got my eyes checked and I have really poor eyesight, like, like really bad eyesight. So if I lived in this, this culture in this century, I, I wouldn't have survived. I couldn't be a hunter or a gatherer. My eyesight's that bad. I wouldn't know who my friends or my enemies are. I wouldn't be, know what fruit I had till it's like right in my face. So imagine living in this culture, like after being a parent, raising your kids, providing for your children, and then you get to the place in life where your eyesight's bad, where you can't care for yourself, and you go to your son and say, please, I, I just need your help. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. I've given everything to God. I can't give you a thing. They actually created a rule or a law to help them not be generous, to help them not give. And Jesus called them out on it. You created a rule that actually helps you violate one of the Ten Commandments so that really you could just keep the things for yourself. You created a rule or a tradition that helps you violate the law of God and break one of his Ten Commandments. He says, thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your stupid traditions. And I threw that word in. Jesus didn't say that, but you can imagine he's thinking it. <laughs> for the sake of your stupid tradition, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Now, <clears throat> you've come up with a rule to keep you, to allow you to keep what you have instead of being generous. And anytime Jesus kind of concluded his, his conversation with you hypocrites, it was kind of the end of the conversation. Right? The, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they would they'd kind of shrug off and like walk their way back through the crowd and then they'd get together outside of the crowd. Like, what were you thinking? Who told you to ask that question? Well, I thought it was a good question. I thought we'd get him. You said it was a good idea. I, I, thought, I mean, Jesus, I, what can you do? He's Jesus. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders, they kind of make their way back through the crowd and they head off. 
And now Jesus is left with, with a crowd of people. And normally this crowd would just kind of move on and Jesus would go his way. He'd kind of part with his disciples to do something. But before they leave, he kind of calls the crowd in. And he says this. <clears throat> he says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. And they're all kind of leaning in because when Jesus says, listen and understand, clearly this is a little, impo a little important. He says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. Because this issue is about touching unclean things and about touching unclean things and then eating and putting something into your mouth. You see, you guys got to get, get the point here. About eating, the kingdom of God isn't about what you're eating. It's not about, it's not about like putting something into your mouth. What goes into your mouth does not defile you. It does not like separate you from God. It doesn't cause some kind of trouble between you and God. And, and he's really, what he's doing, he's kind of introducing something completely new. Because up until this point, the law of Moses that was given was all about do's and don'ts. It was all about behavior modification. It was about don't touch this and don't do that and don't eat this. And, and <clears throat> the Jewish people had like hundreds and hundreds of rules of do's and don'ts. And Jesus is coming on the scene and he's beginning to introduce something brand new. He's beginning to, to kind of introduce this new kingdom he's about to establish with his death and resurrection. See, Jesus is like, like the hinge for the old and the new Testament. This is something old and he's bringing in and he's introducing something new. But you have to keep in mind, Paul tells us that Jesus was born under the law. He was still a good Jewish boy who honored and obeyed the law. But through his life, he begins to flex that and begins to push it and begins to introduce something new. He said, that's kind of the old way of thinking. That's the old way of doing things. That, that's the old do's and don'ts of behavior modification. I want to take it somewhere new. I want to do something more than that. It's not simply about behavior modification. There's something even more. You don't defile yourself by what you put into your mouth, by what goes into your mouth. That was the old law. That was the ancient law. That was the law of Moses. But I'm bringing to you something brand new. He says, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. <clears throat> it's what's in here that comes out of here that creates the problems. It's not what goes in. It's what comes out that actually does the defiling, that actually kind of, kind of puts you at odds with God. And the crowd hears this, and they just kind of go their way. I don't think they have the understanding to really capture what Jesus was saying. But his disciples, they have some questions. So Peter, as you can imagine, this doesn't actually say this, but I'm going to dramatize it for you because I think it's fun. Peter kind of sneaks up on Jesus as they're walking away with his disciples. He says, hey, Jesus, he's like, I, I know what you said. I got it, but those guys don't get it. They're, they're, you know, they're, they haven't caught up with us yet. So would you just explain it to, to them again and maybe go a little slower so they can understand? Because I know what you're saying. But, but I don't think they know. They're a little confused. So, so for their sake, would you tell us one more time what you said? And, and this time, would you go a little slower? So maybe they don't have trouble keeping up. So Jesus turns around, and he actually says this. He says, are you still so dull? Are you still so dumb? Like, have you guys not getting it yet? I've covered this a hundred times. How are you not catching this yet? Okay, guys, come here. Come around. I'm going to explain this one more time, and I'm going to go really slow. See if you can follow me. So this is how, actually how Jesus starts off. I'm not making this up. You guys should read the Bible. Jesus had a, re a real sense of humor. He says, don't you see that whatever enters your mouth goes into your stomach? You, you guys following me? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we get you. And then it goes out of your body. And they're kind of like, all right, yeah, Jesus, we get it. Whatever goes into your mouth goes into your stomach. It goes out of your body. Like, ha, 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 really funny, Jesus. And then Jesus gets really serious. He says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth comes from the heart. The things that come out of a person's mouth, the things that a person speaks, the things that leads to a person's actions, that, that comes out of their heart. And what comes out of their heart, not what comes in, but what comes out of their heart, 
It's these things that defile them. It's these things, it's these behaviors that put them at odds with God. It's not what comes in, it's what's coming out that defiles you, that, that, that kind of breaks your relationship with God. And that's really what, what defile means. It means to kind of put you at odds with God. It's what's coming out. And, and I, I can't like ex- explain this enough. In this culture, this was totally new. Because in this culture, everything was about how we lived with God. It was about always making God happy. Am I making God happy? I'm constantly looking up. Is God happy with me? It's the do's and the don'ts, and I've got to walk this narrow line to try and please this God that I don't see. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. It's, it's, even, it's even bigger than that. It's not, just, it's not like this vertical constantly looking up and down. What defiles you and what puts you at odds with God are the words you say because the words you say hurt other people. And those are the people God loves. It's what comes out of your heart that leads to an action that hurts somebody you love. And that's someone God loves. Therefore, it's put you at odds with God. It's not this constant looking up and down in this vertical, am I right, with God. Jesus is saying, no, no, it's it's bigger than that now. What God is really concerned about is, are are you good with other people? Are you honoring other people? Because if you're not, then you've dishonored God. And now you've been put at odds with God. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, that's an activity. Adultery, that's an activity. Sexual immorality, that's an activity. Theft, false testimony, slander. All of these things come out of a heart and defile a person. This is what defiles people. Because they hurt other people. Because they affect other people. And these are the people that God loves. You see, Jesus is introducing this brand new idea for this group of people that is so hard because they've been raised their entire lives to kind of just please God and do the do's and don'ts. And now he's bringing in this kind of whole new way of thinking that it's just bigger than just making sure God's happy with you and not caring about anybody else. He says, no, no, no. The the way to truly tell that God's happy is how you are caring for everyone else. Because what comes out of your heart comes out of your mouth. Your words and your actions affect other people and have the ability to put you at odds with God. These behaviors, these things that impact people, these kind of horizontal behaviors are what defile a person and what makes God a little upset. And they're kind of, his disciples, as they're kind of processing this, they're beginning to question a little bit. So, so what you're saying, Jesus, is that God's more upset by how I'm mistreating people than how I'm actually trying to please and behave for him? Say, yeah, I, I want to make sure you don't miss this. It's not what you eat with unwashed hands that defiles them. It's not what you eat. Eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Now, again, this is kind of the first time they've ever heard this idea, that they've ever heard this kind of, this kind of big idea that God is actually more concerned about how you're treating other people than he is about necessarily how you're seeing, uh, speaking and treating to him. He's almost like saying that what's inside, that what's on the kind of the inside of your heart is, is a mirror. And our behavior will actually mirror our hearts. That our behavior will actually lead us and mirror our hearts. So we've got to be careful then about what's in our hearts, right? It kind of takes us back to what what Solomon said. Well, if that's true, and if my actions and my words have the ability to put me at odds with God, then I've got to be careful about my actions and my words. But my actions and words don't come from here, they come from here. So if that's the case, I've got to be really careful about my heart. I've got to learn how to guard my heart. I've got to learn how to protect my heart and what's in here. Because eventually what's in here comes out of here and has the ability to affect or ruin even my relationship with God. 
Now, as we wrap up the series, I want to spend the next few minutes just talking about four emotions. Just four emotions and how they affect you and how they should affect you. And how leaning towards these emotions should kind of light up your conscience, should kind of ding your conscience, that when you're headed this way, you're headed into a danger zone, and you need to do something quick to fix it. And it should bother you, and it should light up your conscience. It should remind you, and it should inform you that perhaps you have some work to do. That perhaps something in your behavior, something in your heart needs to change. And if this isn't offensive to God because God's sensitive. This isn't offensive to God because he's so emotional. It's offensive to God because he loves all of us. And what you do has the ability to affect the person next to you, has the ability to affect me. And what I do has the ability to affect you. So God cares, and God wants to make sure <clears throat> we don't do that. So these four emotions, here's what we're going to speak on. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Now, when it comes to these, these can be a little difficult to identify, especially greed, because you don't kind of see greed. It's really hard to feel greed. <clears throat> but when you can't see it, when you are informed, when maybe someone shines a light on you and says, hey, I think you might have this kind of an issue, and our reaction is, no, 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 that's not me, and I, I don't do that. And then we kind of walk away, and it's like, yeah, maybe that is me. <clears throat> as soon as you're informed, and as soon as you see, as soon as you know these are issues in your life, it's our responsibility, it's your responsibility to address them, to put a guardrail in, to make sure you're not headed in that direction. So here's what guilt says when we put these guardrails up. <clears throat> here's what guilt says. Guilt says, I owe you. I owe you an apology. I owe you something because I took something from you. I owe you something because I, maybe I did something and no one knows about, but I'm kind of carrying it around and it's weighing on me and it's making me feel a little uncomfortable. We see this a lot in marriages. You probably have had this conversation before. What's wrong with you? Nothing. What's wrong with you? Nothing. What's wrong with you? Nothing. And you think, how long did he carry this for? Our entire marriage? What's wrong with you? Nothing. What's wrong with you? Nothing. And what we're really saying is that there's just something on the inside that I've done. There's something on the inside that I owe you and I'm uncomfortable and I'm embarrassed. So I'm not going to say anything. So I just kind of carry it around. But it's really clearly to see from the outside that something is wrong. And that's guilt. The next one is anger. Anger says you owe me because you hurt me because you took something from me, because maybe you broke up with me and, and, and the way you broke up with me or what you did and I, what you said, it, it, it hurts. And I'm kind of carrying that around. And here's the thing we know about anger is that anger doesn't, doesn't kind of dissipate. Anger kind of leaks, leaks into other areas, leaks into other relationships, right? Anger is never isolated to the relationship of origin. Anger kind of grows and it lingers and it carries on with us. So what happened to my past relationship, I might carry that anger into my new relationship, and you might have hurt me, and what you said hurt my feelings, and what you said made me angry, and how you broke up with me made me angry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep this, and I'm going to kind of lord it over you, and I'm going to be angry at you, and I'm going to be angry at anybody that reminds me of you. I might be angry at men forever because of what you did to me. And anger just kind of stays, and it lingers, saying, you owe me. And it'll affect every relationship you have from this point on. It'll carry into the, your next marriage and the marriage after that. And it'll affect how you parent and how you treat your children. Greed says, I owe me. We talked about this last week, right? Greed, what is greed? Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed is the assumption that it's all for me. It, it's the thing, yeah, you know, I, I know the guys at work are raising money for, for this thing. And I know this guy in the neighborhood needs this. And that's really bad. And it breaks my heart. And my heart goes out to you. But my money does not. My money stays with me. And, and I'm really moved 
by what I, by what I saw. I'm really moved by that video. I'm really moved by that story. And, and, and I, 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 I will do a lot, but I, I can't part with my money. And I hope you never know how much I make. I hope you never know what I kind of spend my money on because I just, it, it, I, I know it's hard, but I just can't part with it because it's mine and it's all for me. And this may mainly be a man thing. I don't know. I think I just hear these stories as it relates to men. But men, this can be a typical problem for us. And you have to be careful of this. That we can get so attached to our stuff because we tend to like stuff. That we can get so attached to our stuff that the people that we love and the people that we care about feel like they're in constant competition with our stuff. Now, that, that's my car, that's my truck. You know, I clean it and I wash it and I lock it up in the garage. And, and you, you can look at it, but don't touch it. I mean, honestly, we don't really want the people we love and the people we care about to feel like they take second place to our stuff. And I'm not against having stuff. Having stuff is a good thing, and that's okay. But when stuff takes the priority over people, you have a greed problem. And the last one is jealousy. Jealousy is life owes me. Somebody got what I deserve. I was in line for that promotion and they got the promotion. They just kind of brought you in and they gave you the promotion that I've been working for for years and years. Somebody else got what I did. My sister-in-law, she kind of, <clears throat> you know, or my sister, she married up and she got into the good family and they have all this stuff and I wanted that, but I don't have it. And you constantly feel like life owes me. Like I'm getting the short end of the stick and somebody else got ultimately what I deserve. <coughs> you see, if that's in you, if that's in me, we need to deal with it because that gets into your heart. And after a while, that begins to come out of our mouth. And, and, and then sometimes we end up saying things that, that we don't really mean and we'll even say like, where did that come from? You ever done that? You said something, where did that come from? And people are like, I saw where it came from, that big mouth. That, that's not me. I, I don't feel that way. I don't act that way. See, what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. And if you begin to feel these emotions creeping up in you, if you begin to feel them, if you kind of bump against them, if I, even as I'm speaking now, you're getting a little bit uncomfortable, maybe you need to address it. Maybe you need to do some mirror work and look at that issue. When someone confronts you with it and our reaction is, no, 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 that, that's not me. And then they walk away and honestly, we're having that conversation with ourselves. Eh, maybe it's a little bit me. You need to confront it and you need to deal with it. Now, I'm going to give you some suggestions in, in the third column of how we deal with it and what we do. But before I do, I want to say this. If you're not a Christian, um, <clears throat> you know this already, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have no right in the entire world to tell you what you should do, because you, just because it's something Jesus said. Because you haven't submitted yourself to Jesus. You haven't become a Jesus follower. So this isn't me up here shaking my finger at you saying, Jesus said this and you need to do it. If it comes out that way, I'm sorry. Please, this isn't addressed towards you. But if you're a Christian and you hear what I'm about to say, this is, this is like a non-negotiable. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is like 101, kind of basic stuff. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure about God, if you're not sure about faith and you hear these things, let me just kind of invite you into the conversation. This would change your life. This would make you a better person. This would make you a better mother. It would make you a better father. We have this saying that we say all the time here, that following Jesus makes you better at life and makes your life better. It makes you a better father and a better husband, a better employee, a better employer. If you would just kind of be invited in and even begin to make those decisions and take those steps, they might be hard and they may make no emotional sense at all but it would completely transform your life. And it has the ability to completely transform your relationships. 
Because following Jesus makes you better at life and makes your life better. So let's start with the first one. What do we do with guilt? And these are just words. What do we do with guilt? We confess. And, and, and not to God. We've all kind of been raised with this idea that, that I, you know, I just got to confess my sin to God. I'll say that quick prayer at dinner, like, God, forgive me for my sins. And I'm good. <clears throat> and that was kind of good for like that Old Testament kind, that old kind of law way of thinking. But Jesus said, I, I want you to do something different. I want you to confess your sins one to another. It's not just about confessing your sins up and about, about God. God says, I want you when you hurt someone, when you've mistreated someone, when you've spoken against someone, I want you to go and I want you to confess that sin to them. And I know that makes a lot of you uncomfortable. And I know what you're thinking, like, if I do that, like, disaster is around the corner. And I, I got to be honest with you, there may be a little bit of chaos. There may be a little bit of discomfort, but that's what a guardrail is. There may be this temporary kind of chaos swirling on the outside of you, but it's minimal damage compared to what it would do if you hold on to it forever. Because if we hold on to this, what, what tends to happen? What tends to happen with this? We, we, we hold secrets. And we know secrets kind of destroy relationships. We get uncomfortable and it begins to separate our marriages and it begins to, to impact how we raise and how we, we deal and manage and love our children. So what do we have to do? We have to confess. And if you're not that comfortable confessing to the person that you've wronged, the person you've said something against or done something against, let me encourage you. Find somebody you trust and confess it to them. Not a counselor, find a friend, find a coworker, find someone you trust, somebody who's not going to try to fix it. Get it out in the open and begin to talk about this issue. Begin to talk about the thing that you're feeling guilty over. And the hope is that when you do that and you see how kind of easy it was compared to all that disaster you built up in your mind, that your next step would be to confess it to the person you've hurt. But how do we deal with our guilt? We confess it. We get it out in the open. We don't let it be a secret anymore. We rip the cover right off and confess. The next thing, when we come to anger, what do we do with anger? We know this answer, right? We forgive. We forgive. Do you know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is identifying specifically what was taken from me and deciding that you don't owe me that anymore. It's specifically saying, I may be angry about this thing, and here's exactly what it is, but I'm not going to hold you accountable to that. You don't owe me that anymore. I'm letting you off. And that kind of bothers us when we do it because we feel like, well, I'm just letting them go. I'm letting them off the hook. And the truth is you are. And that's why it hurts a little bit. But here's who else you're letting off the hook. You. Because all that anger that you built up on the inside, all the anger that's kind of pouring over in your other relationships and how you treat your wife or your husband or your children or your friends or your mom or your dad, that's kind of leaked out and it's made everything uncomfortable. And that anger is kind of spewed into other relationships. And by getting it out of your heart, by saying, I'm no longer going to hold you accountable to this. I forgive you. I'm canceling that debt. You're saying, anger, you don't own me anymore. Whatever was done to me, it doesn't own me anymore. I've canceled it. Some of you may need to even get a pen and paper, and you need to begin to write that stuff down. Here's what I think they owed me. Here's what's made me angry. And you put it in an envelope, and you just look at it and laugh and say, you don't own me anymore. Anger, you don't control me. I'm canceling that debt. I'm forgiving. And when it comes to greed, we know what the answer is for greed. We talked about this last week. You have to give. You have to write some big-to-you checks. Do you know what a big to you check is? It's a check that's big to you. It might not be big to me. It might not be big to other people. Or the truth is, it might be huge to me and bigger than I can write and bigger to other people. But it's big to you. And here's what you're doing when you do that. You're saying greed, money, possessions, the things that I've placed over other people, you don't own me anymore. 
I'm not going to ruin my relationships. I'm not going to be controlled by my stuff. I'm going to show my stuff who's boss. As a matter of fact, here's something you can do. Go find something that's really valuable to do, preferably not your children. Let's leave the children out of this. Find something that you've kind of, you've kind of protected and, you, and you, know, you put it on a shelf or you collect that's like exceptionally value, valuable to you. Take it and go sell it. And then take the money and go give the money to somebody else who needs it. Go give the money to a nonprofit that hasn't even asked for it. That's like you sticking it to your stuff. See that? You don't own me. I own you. Because let's be honest. All that stuff that we kind of build up, all that stuff that impacts our relationships, all that stuff, men, that we kind of place over our relationships, when we're gone, do you know what's going to happen? They're going to sell it. You're not taking it with you. And the truth is they're not going to sell it for a lot because they don't care. It's a bad memory for them. How do we deal with greed? We give. And then the last one, jealousy. This whole idea that life owes me. I mean, really, if we're, if we're like sincerely and deeply honest about this, we really don't even think that it's life that owes us, do we? What we really think is, is, is that God owes us. It's that, God, you owe me. God, like, like this isn't the life I thought I was going to have. And I look around and I see what all these other people have. I compare my fortune to their fortune. And I wanted what they had and I didn't get it. So, God, you owe me. So many of us begin to feel that way. So many of us, that begins to kind of creak, creep up in our lives. So many of us, it just begins to rear its ugly head. And I hate when it, when it happens. In particular, I hate when it happens to me, and maybe you've, you've experienced this, when you kind of look at somebody else's misfortune and you're almost happy about it. Right? I mean, that's what kind of jealousy does. Like, like oh, good, something bad's happening to them. I feel better now. I mean, that's just like the grossest, ugliest thing we could ever experience. But we do it. That's what jealousy is. And what do we do when it comes to jealousy? We have to celebrate. We celebrate what God's doing us, and we celebrate what God's doing in other people. And do you know where I learned this lesson? From watching these incredible Christian families that have gone through some like unimaginable suffering, whether it be with illness or something with their kids or going through financial hardship. And at the end of it all, it's not like they're standing there, they're pointing their finger at God and, how dare you? They say, God, through it all, this is yours. I don't understand why this happened. I don't particularly like that this happened. But I know ultimately you're in control and you can take this mess and you can make something different. You see, those are the people I respect the most. Those are the people you respect the most because they have the ability. They've learned this ability to look at their circumstance and to not get upset and to not compare, but to say, God, it's all yours anyway. You see, we celebrate we celebrate what's in us, we celebrate what God's done for us, and we celebrate what God's done for other people. And for some of you, that might mean you have to write a letter. You know, Frank, I, I'm so thrilled that you got that job that I was kind of gunning for my whole life, and <clears throat> I really have no hard feelings about it at all. I, I just, you celebrate it. And yes, it's a little uncomfortable. Yes, you don't always enjoy it. But you learn to celebrate. And when it comes to these, these ideas, when it comes to these, these kind of big things in our life, You've got to do some mirror work. You've got to look in the mirror. You know, it's like Michael Jackson said. Look at that man in the mirror. It starts there. When you begin to see guilt rear its ugly head, you've got to confess it. You've got to get it out. You've got to find somebody to confess and to talk to before it ruins you. When you see anger begin to rear its ugly head in you, when you begin to see you're kind of bumping up against that wall and it's anger and, and you owe me, you've got to learn to forgive. 
and say, but I'm canceling that debt, just like Jesus canceled that debt for you. And when it comes to greed, you've got to learn to give. And for some of you say, well, you know, I, I can't give it because I'm not, a, I'm not cheerful about it, and I've got to be a cheerful giver. See, the thing is, you got it wrong. You learn to give until you become cheerful. Because the cheerfulness comes when you've learned to give, and God kind of opens your hands and opens your heart, and you realize that it was never yours anyway, that it's all his to begin with. And you learn to give, and you learn to be cheerful. And finally, when it comes to jealousy, you've got to learn to celebrate other people's wins. You've got to learn to celebrate other people's successes. You've got to stop comparing what you have to what others have or what you don't have with what others have. And you've got to celebrate it and know that ultimately God's in control. And God can take the mess you've made and he can make something fantastic out of it. You see, this is what guardrails do. There may be a little bit of chaos swirling when you begin to confront these things. But it's so much less than it would be if you continued to hold on and it owned you and it ripped relationships apart and ruined marriages and ruined father and son and father and daughter relationships. It ruined your career. You've got to confront it and you've got to deal with it. Last week I shared with you, and I'll close with this, that story of my daughters that I was going to use the three jars to teach them how to give, save, and live. Well, this one I want to share a little bit more. I'm always concerned about kind of what's going on the inside of them. Because, you know, we were raised with behavior modification. We were raised with the do this and the don't do this and sit up and stand up straight and, and you know, act and talk. And, and it was all behavior modification. And I still do that with my kids. But, but what I'm really concerned about is, is what's on the inside. Because all this other stuff, all these words, all these actions, it all kind of stems from what's going on on the inside. So when I tuck them to bed at night, and, and that's kind of our routine. Every night I tuck our girls into bed and we say our prayers and <clears throat> they always ask to cuddle a little bit put my hand on their chest before I leave, and I say, hey, hey Bella, hey, Sophia, is, is everything okay with you? How's your heart? Are you upset? Did someone hurt your feelings? Did somebody lie to you today? Did, 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 did I break a promise? Because parents, we break promises sometimes. And they call me out on it. Just last night, Bella called me out on it. She felt I broke a promise to her. <clears throat> but sometimes as I'm talking to them, they'll kind of begin to verbalize, yeah, you know, well, this happened, Dad, but, but I'm not upset, and this happened, but it really didn't hurt my feelings. I just, I kind of feel bad for them. And, and, and it's just kind of shining the light, like, good, you know what to look for. Good, like, like you're learning that it's what's on the inside that, that really matters, because what's on the inside is what comes out, and that's what affects everything else. So let me ask you this question. How's your heart? How's your heart? Is everything okay? Has anybody hurt your feelings? Has anybody made you angry? How's your heart? See, only you can answer that. But when you do, and when you're really honest with yourself, if that answer is, yeah, there's something here, you've got some work to do. Because it's like Solomon says, above all else, above everything else, guard your heart, because everything flows from it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this incredible wisdom that, that is held in these scriptures and that has survived thousands and thousands of years, God, for, for those incredibly brilliant words by Solomon. God, that still capture us today to protect and to guard our heart because it is, it is from there. It's from that inside thing that, that everything flows. God, I pray that, that if we have some work to do as we kind of analyze and we do this introspection and we kind of look at our life, God, I, I pray that you would shine the light on the areas, on those emotions, on those maybe lack of guardrails we have that we need. God, and I pray you'd give us the wisdom to put a guardrail up in that safety zone to keep us, God, from doing something that would hurt somebody we love or ourselves. I pray you'd give us the wisdom to do it and the courage to do it when it gets tough. And God, it might get tough. 
but I pray you'd help us to do it anyway. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.